0: Faith Over Fear is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational, faith affirming podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we attack our most pervasive fears with truth, because life is too short for any of us to live enslaved. We are passionate about helping God's children live in freedom. We would love to chat with you online or on social media. Visit our show notes to learn how to connect with us. Jennifer Slattery, and today I'm here with popular and prolific writer Philip Yancey to talk about his latest book, A Memoir Where the Light Fell, and it releases on October 5th. In this powerfully transparent book, he shares some of the hurts and confusing messages he received growing up in a Southern fundamentalist culture and also an abusive home and false messages regarding who God is how God relates to mankind, and really messages that are so, so contrary to grace. Philip, thank you so much for being here with us today.
2: It's my pleasure, Jennifer.
1: So Philip is the author of 25 books, including The Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace, and Soul Survivor, How 13 Unlikely Mentors Helped My Faith Survive the Church. (laughs) Yancey's book have garnered 13 gold medallion book awards from Christian publishers and booksellers. He currently has more than 7 million books in print, And he has been published in over 50 languages worldwide. Yancey worked as a journalist in Chicago for some 20 years, editing the youth magazine Campus Life, while also writing for a wide variety of publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Christianity Today. In 1992, he and his wife Janet moved to the foothills of Colorado that has to be absolutely beautiful where they live now.
2: Yes, in fact, we moved there from downtown Chicago, so that was quite a switch.
1: (laughs) I bet it was.
2: We went from sea level to to 7,200 feet, and we went from looking at squirrels and pigeons and rats to wildlife roaming through our backyard.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. I love Colorado. Well, Philip, I've read a lot of your books, and I really appreciate the humility and the transparency with which you write. And having read your memoir, I feel like I can now understand where hmm. your authenticity and your and your gentleness come from. It, it's clear you have really deep empathy for those who wrestle with doubts regarding God and those who have been hmm. deeply hurt in the name of religion, because that was you.
2: It was, yes. Uh, started out very young, before I was even fully conscious. When I was 13 months old, my father died. He had polio was a young minister, 23 years old, planning to go to Africa as a missionary. And it it took me a long time. And it's not until I was 18 that I discovered the backstory there. A group of Christians around him, and he was, he was participating, couldn't believe that this person with so much potential for God would be paralyzed in an iron lung with polio. And so they believed he would be healed. Surely God wouldn't, quote, take somebody like that. So against medical advice, they removed him from the iron lung, checked him out of the hospital and and moved him somewhere else. And, And apparently it seemed to be working for about nine days. And then he died. And my whole life from 13 months on was lived under the shadow of that error in theology. These were not people who, who wished him ill, they loved him they wanted to support him but they took on a prerogative that we don't have they decided what was god's will and acted on it without being sure and in my whole life i've i've had to separate out people who speak for god who claim to speak for god and people that god is actually speaking through i had i had to distinguish the fake from the authentic and that's what i've spent my career doing in my writing trying
1: Well, that's really challenging. So what in particular, what do you think, just looking back at your, your fundamentalist upbringing, and then also I would say your abusive home, what behaviors and attitudes do you think were the most toxic?
2: For me, racism was a huge part of that. I was growing up in the South, right, as the civil rights movement was underway and my church was on the wrong side of everything. In fact, they had cards that they would give out to any African-American person who tried to come to that church saying, we know you're a troublemaker, not a true believer. You're not welcome here. I mean, My goodness, but they actually did that. The deacons had a patrol that that would stand on the steps and give that, and they also taught that people of color were inferior. They were cursed by God to serve whites. I mean, it's hard to even say this, but it, it was true, and I found out as a teenager that that was wrong, that they had lied to me, that the Bible passages they were using do not support that. And and when they lie about something like race, then you begin to question, well, maybe they lied about the Bible. Maybe they lied about Jesus. And I went through a, a period of suspended faith, I guess I would say. And by God's grace, he brought me back eventually. And later in my life, I I just lived under grace. I found this Dr. Paul Brand, who I wrote different books with, who was a saintly man who taught me so much. So I lived under the toxic church for the first 20 years or so. And then after that, the grace-filled church. And that's not a bad ratio. I'm over 70 now. So 20 years under law, 50 years under grace. That's pretty good. But uh, a lot of people get stuck there. A lot of people don't know how to overcome those wounds and are afraid even to share them with others who can help them.
1: You know, I think that's a really big point, afraid to share, because mm. I think there's that when I read your book, and I've just heard from other people as well, in unhealthy church environments, you're not allowed to question, right? Yeah. And and I know I read part of that when you were with the college you were at, which was mm-hmm. probably a time in your developmentally when you should have been questioning, right? Like, I think God uses yeah. questions. Yeah. so. It wasn't really easy for you to question and investigate.
2: Right. And yeah, sometimes I say you hear these testimonies of people who say I was saved from alcohol. I was saved from drugs. And frankly, what brought me to God was was honestly doubting things my church told me (laughs) because I realized that um, they had misrepresented God. That was the most grievous thing. I, I emerged from childhood with this image of God as this cosmic bully in the sky, just waiting to pounce on people, break them, crush them. And I'm not exaggerating. You've read the memoir. You know the stories. And I later had to be softened, and, and, and God graciously brought me back to him. The title of the book is Where the Light Fell, which is a quote from St. Augustine. He said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look on where the the sun's rays fell, the light fell. And I couldn't look at the sun directly because I had been scorched by it. I was so saturated with the Bible and and religion and revival services and all that. And I was so confused. I, I just couldn't look at it. There's no way God could reach me through those words. It was through other things, nature, classical music, romantic love, that softened me. And I wanted by then because i had looked on the rays i wanted to go back to the rays and find out where they came from because what i was experiencing the goodness of this world could not have been created by that cosmic bully i needed to i needed to know the real god not the god that the church had given me
1: you know and you talk about how you couldn't you couldn't really come to him through you know i would say what i'm interpreting you saying is like scripture or the traditional correct methods I'm assuming that there was a little bit of emotional trigger responses in those situations. Did you ever feel like, did you feel anxious going into a church service or in a in a faith environment?
2: I felt so conflicted and torn. Anybody who's raised in one of those hellfire and brimstone churches, when you're young, especially, you know, I question myself every day. Did I really mean it when I accepted Jesus Christ as my savior last week? You know, well, maybe I should do it again, just in case. And my whole uh, trauma really was trying to separate out the fake from the authentic because you know there are behaviors you can learn. You, mm-hmm. you can go to church and kind of see how people pray in public and see what kind of testimony they give, and you you can learn how to do that. And in fact, you know I've heard stories of people from Hollywood and they're they're wanting to do a movie on Christians, so they they go and learn to be a Christian. <laughs> they don't really mean it, but they're learning to act it, and when you're raised in that environment so that you just act it all the time, at a certain point, you think, did I really mean that? What What is the truth? What is the fake? And my brother took a different path than I did. And he's always been my, my conscience saying, uh, are you just one of them? Again, just like the people we were raised with, are you just acting out of play? Show me that you really mean it. You mentioned
1: your brother, and I will say I loved... How you responded to him, and just the way kind of you processed his. You said something in the book about how you didn't really go to condemn his behavior, and you didn't. You just did, You were just there, and you just loved him and showed him him grace.
2: Yeah, and he, and he pushed the envelope on that too. <laughs> he uh, he was brilliantly talented as a musician, and went to the Wheaton Conservatory of Music, but he dropped out his last semester. He, they can't make me finish. This is the 60s. And he became a hippie, used drugs, used LSD, uh, damaged his brain, went to California, cut off all contact with everyone in the family except me. And uh, he and my mother didn't see each other for, still haven't for more than 50 years. Our mother, I should say. And my brother kept trying to, I think, shock me. And he would All these sexual escapades and drugs and gambling and and he knew judgment. He knew condemnation. And anyone who had tried to kind of look at him with a stern, you know, you shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff, he would cut off contact. He was trying to get free, free, free. Well, he did get free. He got free to self destruct, frankly. And yet, as his brother, I knew if I just gave one word of judgment, it's over. I would lose my any. impact I could have on him. So love was tested. And I'm sure people who are listening, there are a lot of parents who know about that. You know, their kids go a very different way. And, and you you love, and when they're self-destructing, you want them to change, obviously. You don't want them to go down that path. But in my brother's case, I really felt, especially as his brother, not his parent, not his pastor or authority figure, that all I could do is just be alongside him and support him and love him regardless. Then he had a stroke about 10 years ago and is severely disabled. And who did he turn to? Well, I was the only one left who had stuck with him for all those years. So I think that was God's way of preparing the role I play with him now.
1: Yeah, and I would probably say for those listening who maybe haven't experienced that level of hurt, but will encounter people who do, what I loved Mm -hmm. about your interaction with him, one, I think you were very spirit-led. And so you interacted with him in how God was leading you directly to interact with him and you knew his story. And when I, when I consider some of the, the interactions you experienced, frankly, they didn't know your story. Had they known your story, Mm -hmm. I think like at, at college, the, the other college students and even the professors, I would hope had they known your story, they would have interacted with you differently.
2: Well, we'll see how they respond to the book where they learn the story. Uh, you no, know, I think you're right. There's there's some slogan I, I've seen it on a on a poster that it's a good thing to keep in mind that every person you meet may be bearing a cross that they can hardly bear, and if you go around and see people with that light, instead of seeing them as offensive or rebellious or whatever, but see them as confused or thirsty. That's that's what I pray. I learned that prayer from Henry now. And he said, when I when I see somebody who's really moral, morally offensive, I just think of them as thirsty, like the woman at the mount. Well, because that's what Jesus did. He didn't, he knew about her past and he, I'm sure, disapproved of it, but he didn't scold her for it. He just said, you're looking in the wrong place. You're not going to find it there. Here's a different way. Are you thirsty? Because the water I have will never run dry.
1: Amen. So you talked about to you were kind of, just in your growing up, and then I know in your college days, you were conflicted. So how did this, your interactions, how did that affect your personal identity?
2: I didn't know who my identity was. So I I kind of went through a period of creating a new one. I was shy, very introverted. I was, I had skipped a grade. So I was always the youngest person in my class and an easy target for bullies. And I was just trying to survive, you know? And then I thought, "Well, I can use my head, so I need to look around and see how you how you become a person <laughs> and I learned that people who told jokes or were kept up on current news and initiated contact uh you know this is how you become a person, so once again, I was faking it you know i was I was learning how to how to have an identity that was artificially constructed and eventually. That didn't work so well, so I just kind of sealed myself off, and uh, you, I know your program reaches people who do survive dysfunctional families, dysfunctional churches, and and there may be a time, it was important for me to just put a shell around myself where nobody could get to me, meaning nobody could hurt me. And and I I worked on that very sincerely, even to the extent of hurting myself and trying to trying to say there's no such thing as cold or hot and bad smells, good smells. You know, it was it was a very serious attempt to seal off any, any way people could get to me. Didn't last very long, fortunately, but maybe three years. And it helped me get through years that my brother did not. My brother took it on, took on the conflict, and was beaten down. When you're a kid, you usually you lose. The adults will win. But uh, I didn't engage. I just kind of withdrew.
1: You know, I think that's important for listeners to hear as well. You went through, so you experienced significant trauma mm-hmm. in, in numerous ways. And and then you said you you went through this three-year period where it sounds like you were just working through hard stuff. And maybe at the time where it seemed like the way you were processing it, other people could maybe find judgment with. And and so yeah. I... I think it's important for listeners to understand when they deal with their trauma and they have to pull away and maybe they work through it. It sounds like in some ways you work through it in unhealthy ways, but that you also, is that correct? Am my understanding?
2: It is correct. Yeah. And I think that's quite common among people raised by a single parent, whether it's a mother or a father. Um, I could have used a father. A father probably could have figured out what was going on and, tried to toughen me up a little bit, but also be, be gentle. My mother was just threatened by things. She didn't know how to respond, so she kind of attacked. And it, it's hard. It's really hard when you're raising kids by yourself and you've got no one to process it, no one to balance you off, moderate you. And I'm sure there are a lot of your ris- listeners out there who have experienced that as as the children of a single parent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, I think it's important that they recognize there is health and healing on possible on the other side, because yeah, here you are writing and speaking, and I'm sure you still have and and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm sure you still occasionally have residual hurt that was deep hurt i don't I don't know if if that ever really fully goes away,
2: yeah, you could talk to my wife about dismantling the shell that I have built <laughs> we've been married fifty years, so uh, she's had a lot of experience there, but you're absolutely right and we find different ways for healing i love that uh, passage in second corinthians 1 that talks about the father of compassion and the god of all comfort and that's what the church should be in fact paul is telling us in that passage he says i want you to take the comfort that you've received from the god of all comfort and spread it abroad Give- but give with what you've received to others. And in any church, there are gonna be some healthy people and some really deeply unhealthy people. Most churches attract them. There's a place where they feel like they could they could go without being punished. And, and it, it should be that, we're the body of Christ. And I remember one of the books I wrote with Dr. Paul Brand, he said, a healthy body is not a body that feels no pain, it's a body that feels the pain of the weakest part. That's one of the things we in the church can do. We can, The strong can look for the weak, look for the weakest part, minister to them. And, and that's what Jesus did. Who did he go to? He didn't go to the proud, successful, rich people. He went to the, the nobodies, the outcasts, and they were attracted to him. They didn't feel judged, they didn't feel inferior, they felt loved.
1: I know you said you didn't hear from God or experience him personally until college, correct? Like where you really felt like you had an encounter?
2: That's correct. uh, Some people never have one of those dramatic moments with a vision or revelation or something like that. And frankly, when it happened to me, I didn't even believe in them. I I made fun of people's (laughs) stories and thought they were just making them up. And then I got one and I, I never really told the story in detail, but I do tell it in the book. And I, I've hesitated all of my writing career to really, to really present that because God works in different ways with different people. My wife was raised in a healthy church environment. She's never really gone through a deep period of doubt and, and wrestling with God. And I did and had kind of given up. I just thought, well, there's no way uh, I, I'll never be able to tell what's real from what's fake. And, and then God met me in a very decisive way, and it was it changed my life forever from that moment on. I'm not holding that up as, as a model. I mean, you go through the Bible, and there are times when God does that, and then there are other times when God doesn't. And it, that's God's prerogative. <laughs> you can't manipulate God. And yet God came to me at a time when I, I wasn't really seeking him and I wasn't really necessarily desiring him. But I had been softened, and I was ready. And when he came, I I responded, how could I not?
1: Are you, is that something you're saving it for the book or would you be comfortable sharing actually that encounter here?
2: Well, yeah, it's a, it's a long story. It takes several pages, but just briefly, I was in a prayer meeting. I had never prayed. I, I would wait till everybody else in the room prayed and then uh, leave. But this one time I, I prayed, we were, we were supposed to be, quote, evangelizing this university nearby. So they would go and pass out tracts and had to start conversations. And I'd go sit in a student lounge and watch sports on television. <laughs> That's the kind of person I was at this Christian college. But this one time I started praying. I have no idea why. I just said, God, you know, I don't care if that entire university, 10,000 students go to hell. I don't care if I go to hell, if there is such a thing. You'd have to be in a Christian college to realize what that sounded like. I mean, I might as well have been invoking witchcraft or child sacrifice or something. Very tense in that room. And then while I was praying, I started uh, talking aloud about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I, I know this is not what Jesus was trying to get across. Had no good hermeneutics professor would allow this interpretation. <laughs> But I, I actually had—I um, guess you could call it a vision. I was seeing images, and the image I saw was the Samaritan reaching down to help this poor, bloodied person in a ditch. Right? Only the poor, bloodied person was me. It—it it, it was my features. I knew it was me. And then the closer I looked, the good Samaritan was the face of Jesus. And every time he reached down, I would spit in his face, and it just—it just shook me because here I thought I was the arrogant know-it-all who embarrassed the professors, who was smarter than the people around me, these pasty-faced uh, Christians, you know. And then I realized, no, I was the neediest one of, of all. I was the one in the ditch. And and the only way out was to let Jesus. It, it, was, it was a humiliating experience, because... A few days later, I stood up and read the whole story to a class. And this is the class that I had scorned and was judged as a renegade by. And and that's where it all started.
1: That really is such a beautiful picture of grace, really, just hmm. the, heart, the heart of Jesus. And I, I, I think it's just significant to know that God reaches us each uniquely.
2: Yeah, isn't that true? And when I look back you uh, 've been talking to the publisher about this book because I deliberately went to a publisher that it 's a New York publisher, Penguin Random House because I wanted to reach the people who aren 't in the church now who gave up on it i 've read there are as many as twenty five million ex evangelicals you know, people who are raised in an environment like mine, maybe uh not as extreme not as not as all encompassing but maybe they went to uh, a a youth young life club or a campus crusade in college. Maybe they went to a summer camp and, and they look back kind of wistfully on those days, but somehow they got turned off by the church. Either they were judged for some of their behavior or they didn't like the church's anti-science or anti-gay or, you know, whatever. There are all these reasons you can get upset with the church and, and leave it. But my message is, when I'm with these people, I, I, they expect me, oh, you're a Christian author, so you're going to defend the church. They say, oh, no, mine was a lot worse than anything you've seen. Um, but are you really going to forfeit the chance to connect directly to the Lord of the universe over the way the church treated you? And and I I think and hope my book is a book of hope, that there is light on the other side. And don't throw the baby out with the, with the bathwater. Don't judge God by the image that the church gave you, find it out for yourself. I did that. And when I did it, it, it transformed my life. And I've spent happily the next 50 years exploring that. And it, there still were a lot of questions in my writing career is a matter of going through and deciding what I should keep, what I should discard. We, we all do that. Some not as consciously. It's my job as a writer to do that. But I encourage everyone, don't just drift away. Do it consciously. I mean, maybe you're going to take a look at the evidence and decide against it. Well, that's your choice. God gives us that freedom to reject God. But don't do it just by drifting. Do it consciously.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, I was a little surprised. So when I read, I think you had mentioned in there, one of the college leaders or or somebody, I don't remember their title, but they had read the book and they seemed offended. They said, How can you say that about us? And yeah, I don't know if you remember that, but when I I do when I read yeah. when I read that, it it grieved me. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why it, it grieved me deeply because what that told me, and, and I'll tell you why I mentioned this, but what that told me is I've seen your pain. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen your brother's pain. Mm-hmm. I see what my behavior, intentional or not, right? I mean, it, we all do things unintentionally that cause right. people pain in our own brokenness. But I see how my brokenness created increased brokenness in this individual. And, and for your brother, like drove him from the faith completely. Right. And I, what I had, would have loved to see is I'm so very sorry, that I hurt you in this way. And so Mm -hmm. what would you say to those who feel like they need that? I'm sorry, whether from their parents or from their church or whoever had, had caused that pain.
2: You know, that's something few churches, few leaders get well, um, do, do very well. I mean, it's so easy to be defensive. It's so easy to, to be part of the propaganda machine. And The church only exists for people who admit they can't make it on their own. There are a lot more fun ways to spend Sunday morning. (laughs) You can watch football. You can do all sorts of things. The only reason to come together is is to realize that we are not God and that we need God and we need God's people around us. I've, I've learned a lot from the recovery movement, Jennifer, where... I've gone with friends to alcoholics anonymous and and you start with your weakness you start with your failure and if you don't face it you're not going to recover I mean that's step 1 you'll never get to step 2 unless you do that and so they not only encourage they force honesty if you try to they've heard every excuse in the book and if you try to smooth smooth one over on them they're going to nail you they know they can detect a lie they can detect a hypocrite and in the church, it's easy because we have the ideals, and it's easy to, to, to be one of those hypocrites who looks down on people who aren't quite where you are. And I look for a church that, that rewards honesty and that, that looks for the weakest part that's, that surrounds them with compassion and love. And if you're one of those people, I would just say uh, find find somebody Maybe it's just one person or maybe it's a small group, but find a group that rewards honesty rather than punishes it. If you're feeling you're being punished when you're when you're being vulnerable and open, then leave that group and find another one <laughs> because you can't really grow unless you start there.
1: Amen. Amen. And yeah, and maybe just pray to like Lord, give me someone. So I think I think it can be confusing to know who is mm-hmm. what is a healthy environment. And and what isn't?
2: Yeah, you're right. Uh, That's a good one. Just give me someone I, I talk about a doubt companion. If you're going through doubts, find one person who will just kind of listen and nod their head and and doesn't immediately jump in with a refutation. Well, but have you considered, you know, no, you just need somebody who says, yeah, that's worth thinking about. That's worth working through. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you haven't given up. That's what you need and when you when you look for a doubt companion you don't want to find somebody who's worse off than you are you know you want to find somebody who's got their feet on solid ground and you're you're rushing by in the river and they can reach out and grab a hand and keep you from from being swept away and there are people out there i certainly have found them in my life and and we need them and for healthy christians i would say that's part of your role to look for people who are struggling and they're often not easy to be around. They don't t- they're, they're guarded. They're defensive. They're, they're hurt. And um, look for that, that hurt look. Look for the, the people on the edge who, who don't seem comfortable. They're not comfortable. And our job is to introduce them to the father of compassion.
1: Amen. That's so beautiful. And I would just encourage the listeners to read his book, Where the Light Fell, whether you're if you've struggled, if if you're if you've experienced deep hurts, I think it's going to be really healing for you and, and maybe get help you see your situation through the lens of grace. Sometimes it can help when we see other people, what they have gone through. And if you haven't experienced deep hurt, Philip, what was the number of the the dechurched? About
2: 25 million. I got that from David Gushy, who's a historian, works at Mercer University, a good friend, writes for Christianity Today. And he said it may be as high as 30 million, because there, there are about 100 million people who identify as evangelicals now. And so 30 million were, who were raised in that environment and yet don't feel comfortable using that label on themselves now.
1: Yeah, so I would say for those of you who haven't experienced hurt, hurt, that read the book so that it will just open your awareness for those you mm. encounter. And, and I think you can be alert to people in religious settings if they tense up, if their body language changes, if their facial expressions change, and just to be alert for that. Well, thank you for listening. And I do hope today's discussion just gave you some things to think about, maybe just drew you to the God of compassion. Philip, thank you so much for being transparent with your story.
2: Well, that's all we've got. We've got our stories, right? And uh, I've waited a long time to tell mine, because it will it will hurt people as well, I'm sure. But I I, I do that. I take that at risk for this for the sake of reaching people who are likely and likewise hurt.
1: Absolutely. Well, we'll put some information in the show notes where you can find Philip and make sure if you haven't already done so to subscribe to this podcast, then you won't miss a single episode. I'd love it if you would rate it. That helps others to find it and it encourages our team as well. Until next time, may you live as one who truly has been set
0: free. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Faith Over Fear, a production of Life Audio and the Salem Web Network. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. To learn more about Jennifer Slattery or to check out any of the resources she mentioned in this episode, just head over to her website, Loud.com, or check out our show notes. This episode was produced by Kelly Givens and edited by Stephen Sanders. A special thanks to our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey. For more Faith Toolkit podcasts like this, Just head over to LifeAudio.com.
1: No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Sis, if you've experienced pain in your father-daughter relationship, I want you to know that you are loved and seen. I'm Kia Stevens, host of the Hope for Women with Father Wounds podcast, and I created my show to help you exchange your father wounds for the love of God the Father. Join me for encouragement, wisdom, and scripture. Just search Hope for Women with Father Wounds on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.